Hello, and welcome to Dungeon Talk, the general advice and discussion podcast from D&D Academy. I am Michael, and this is Dungeon Talk episode 34, a podcast three-way. Caleb and I had actually already recorded this podcast about a week ago, but when I went back and listened to the audio, it was just completely unusable. It was awful. So rather than trying to make it work and over-edit the audio, we just decided to re-record it, and then we were able to actually get Porter uh, who plays in our Fae game online. He actually DMs our Fae game online to join us. We've been trying to get him on for a while, and it finally worked out. So we didn't just completely redo the same conversation. We had a third person there, which changed things up a little bit. This is the first of a sort of a two-parter. We, we talked for about two hours, uh, a bunch of different topics. They all kind of related to campaigns. So I cut it into two separate podcasts to break them down to about an hour each or so. So next week, you'll get the other half of this conversation. So we start off talking about inspiration. Where do you get ideas for campaigns? Where can you get ideas for campaigns? And then talk a little bit specifically where some of our campaigns have come from. We then move on to a session of synergy. And this is where Caleb and I opened a pack of magic cards. In this case, we use Magic Gathering Core 2014. And we use those cards as inspiration for an idea for a campaign. And uh, one of the things that I did is in the show notes, you can actually see each card and then my initial thought of what I thought I might use that card for, and in some cases I did, in some cases I didn't, I decided it might be interesting to see the initial thought process versus the, the finished product. And I uh, also would really like, if anyone out there would like to look at those same cards and then send in what your campaign idea was based off that, that's something we could certainly throw up on the site or maybe up on Facebook. Um, or if you do your own synergy with a, either a different pack of magic cards or anything like that, please send us in what you come up with and the cards you used, and we can put that up as well. We kind of took a tangent off of Synergy and talked a little bit about social combat, specifically skill challenges from D&D 4th edition. We then move on to starting levels and, uh, you know, why we start levels that we do, what's our favorite starting level, and, you know, stuff like that. And this also got us on another tangent where I talk about the game that I've always wanted to run, that it's never quite worked out. And then that actually sparks Porter to talk a little bit about a setting that he's read about called Aftermath of the Ragnarok. I do include a link in the show notes for you to go to that site. And there's a Fate edition and a Savage Worlds edition, I believe. And it's essentially something happens which causes the uh, world-devouring worm to come into our world, but then it dies. And so we live in a world where there's a giant earth or worm the size of the earth, basically. It's just crashed and lay down on top of Europe, I guess. Uh, and then we kind of finish up with me apologizing to Olaf. Uh, Olaf sent me an email months ago asking me to review a game called White Hack, and I told him I would, and I still plan on it, but I haven't yet, and it's been so long I just wanted to say that I hadn't forgot about him. So there you go. As always, we appreciate you guys listening. Looking forward to feedback and comments. If there's... Um, you know, if you, if you listen to us on iTunes, we'd certainly would appreciate a review there. If you listen to us on Stitcher, same thing. Um, I think I mentioned this last couple, but right now, really, the majority of our traffic still comes from RPGpodcast.com. We have jumped dramatically from just within the last three weeks. We are now in the top ten recommended shows, and I want to thank everyone out there who took some time to go to that link and recommend our shows and get us there. We're only a few away to get up even to the next number. So I'm thinking that we might actually be able to hit top five maybe in the next month or two. So please, if you have a few moments, if this is a show that you would recommend, please go to rpgpodcast.com, click on the leaderboard, 
uh, and you can see where we're at, you actually have to click on the shows individually. And actually on the Facebook, I, I sent a link that goes to our show page. And I think the last 10 episodes are there. So if you just want to do me a huge favor and go recommend all 10, I would certainly appreciate it. So I'll shut up now. Enjoy the show. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, so I want to welcome my special guest tonight, uh, Caleb, who's been my co-host for a while and probably will be for the foreseeable future, is joining me once again. Hello. Uh, Caleb. Hello, hello. And then we have another special guest this week. Um, he runs our Fay Game Online. So if you're listening to the Fay podcast, you have probably heard him running those games. He also uh, has been a semi-frequent contributor to some of our Facebook pages and Twitter conversations. Uh, Porter Williams, also known as RazorStorm on Twitter. Hey, guys. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Oh, looking forward to it. We've been trying to get you on for a while. It just hasn't quite worked out. And and through the tragedy of our misfortune gives rise to your opportunity to to join us. (laughs) I'm thrilled. Thank you. for. (laughs) I'm, I'm so excited to finally make it. But what we want to start with tonight is talking about campaigns. So the aim of this podcast is for new players, new DMs to kind of get you into the game so that you can get your feet wet and play. And kind of the the, the standard game that you're going to play in a D&D or a D&D clone is a campaign. And that's a series of adventures that are linked together with some sort of overarching plot or continuous use of the same characters. So if you get volunteered to be the DM, you know, maybe you want to put the group together and there's some people that are interested in playing, but you're the, you're kind of the driving force, which is kind of what happened with me, is you kind of get voluntold to be the DM. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think on the other side of that to jump around is that sometimes if you're already in a group and you're a player, you get an idea for a cool story and you say, hey, can I, can I run? I want to run this cool story. And it's about learning the mechanics of the game. But for some people... The mechanics are okay if they're not that important. It's about a story, and whether it be maybe it's like a one-shot and you don't have a lot of time to prepare, it's sort of an impromptu game, where do you draw inspiration? So I'll start with you, Caleb. So give us some examples of of places that you can draw inspiration when starting a new campaign. Well, with me personally, a lot of the times I am just borrowing ideas from TV or video games, movies, movies especially books. We all have a pretty big library of fantasy and sci-fi and whatnot. So a lot of times it's just cherry-picking those really choice scenes that appeal to me as a viewer or reader or audience participant. And I say, I really like how these events played out. How can I include that in what I'm writing for my game, how what I'm building? Sometimes it's simply... I work backwards from a really big climactic moment I want my players to play out. Like, I'll I'll come up with a boss fight, to use the video game term, and then I have to figure out how I want the PCs to get there. So I start tracing backwards and building these plot threads to get to the fight or the scene that I've already constructed for the end goal. So sometimes I work forward, sometimes I work backward, but really it's uh, it's just kind of sampling everything that's out there, you know, finding the things you like and putting them together. 
I think that goes back to the, the writer mentality that you and I both have. Uh, I know that with my writing, I'm usually really good at beginnings and I'm really good at endings. It's all that part in the middle that I struggle with, and I think most wannabe writers would agree with that. The, so, the middle is always very, very difficult. Something that I do when I'm struggling with the middle is, even though I don't play a lot of different RPGs, I have a library of them, so I have a kind of academic understanding and if I'm stuck on something, a lot of times I'll just pick up the equivalent of the monster manual, the bestiary, or whatnot, and try to spark some interest. Or I'll flip through a book that has traps, or scenery, or really cool environments. And if I'm totally at a, a writer's block, say, okay, well this, this monster's pretty cool, can I use that to get from... A to C and fill in the blank because I'm stuck. Just an idea. All right, so Porter, what about you? What are some ways that you draw inspiration or maybe a particular campaign that, that came from an interesting place? So I actually really struggle with campaigns because I have a, I've always had a really hard time like like coming up with the big picture stories of how things fit together. I uh, be because I have a tendency to make things a little too blunt, and it's like jump right to the big exciting part and not the complex buildup, which is exactly opposite of my wife, who has a really good sense for scheming and and uh, all the the intrigue that comes along the way. But um, something that I have uh, kind of found to be helpful is taking either a book or um, uh, a TV episode or something. Usually, usually books are where I where I'll steal these from, and. Tra tra uh, transport it to another genre and change all change all of the people. And actually, I was planning a. I really wanted to play an Age of Arthur game, and I was actually uh, one of the factors in there that's really a really big part of the setting are the uh, are potentially the fairy courts. And I was actually going to steal all a bunch of the whole kind of fairy courts uh, big plot line from the Dresden Files and shove it into Ooh. Dark Ages Britain. Um, which would work really, really well, but with all new players. But the basic idea of the conflict between the fairy queens and their knights and mortals getting sucked into that that whole drama. So take a story and look at all of the players as uh, as containers or blanks that you can plug new players into for your campaign. And okay. if you cross genre, no one will recognize it. Uh, yeah, and, and even if they do... There's not a story you can tell me that I can't probably go and find in, in the Bible. Absolutely. You know, it, it, I mean, it's just how you tell it differently and make it interesting and, you know, being more interactive in a role-playing game. But pretty much every story that's ever been written, its basis can be found in, in ancient literature. So we're all retreading stuff that's already been trodden. I want to agree with both of you guys. Obviously, books and movies, TV shows, I draw a lot of inspiration from really even podcasts. Uh, I've mentioned that before. Before I started doing my own, I was a, a fan of multiple podcasts. And the Made Men game, there were quite a few things about it that I stole directly from other podcasts. None of my players listened to them, so it didn't matter. And I, I <laughs> they don't them know. <laughs> exactly, they don't know. Mm -hmm. And I changed it enough that even if you listen to both podcasts, I don't know that you would really know that I stole from them. It was more of that inspiration. Uh, but I, I told Caleb before, uh, the, the, the heart of the Made Men game was actually inspired by a political commercial uh, this really? was back when uh, Obama was running for re-election, and Chuck Norris was on a, a commercial. He's a very conservative person, and um, he basically, the, the line was, if Obama's re-elected, it will start a thousand years of darkness. 
and like it will spiral our country and possibly the world into this you know abominated thing whatever and that phrase thousand years of darkness just stuck with me and I was like that's you know that's kind of interesting that this one little thing this one little moment could have that <laughs> drastic of an impact and uh, the game that we were playing before the actual Made Men game which I've hinted at a couple other times and talked a little bit about is the the characters that had started were captured by these tieflings, and the tieflings knew that these aliens, that were what we called the Gis or the Gastarians in the Maven game, were coming. And they were trying to get the forces prepared beforehand to, to fight them off. And one of the characters was the linchpin. They were the key component is what and what the, the, the good guys, for lack of a better term, needed. But there was this sort of accident that sent those characters into the future to the other side. And that's actually where the Maven game occurs. It's after the, the aliens had come, conquered, and left. So the linchpin character that was needed wasn't there, which is what caused the Thousand Years of Darkness. So I took that, that one little line from a commercial and then just, you know, obviously added the Michael twist to it. <laughs> uh, but it still sticks with me, just that one little thing. So really, inspiration can come from about anywhere. Um, again, big big fan of podcasts myself right now. Uh, there's one that I listen to that I love that I want to steal from now, but it's one of the more popular ones. And then since I do my own, I thought it'd be kind of cheesy. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to steal snippets, but not let people know exactly what's happening. I want to go back to something Porter brought up real quick when we were talking about how it's easy to get lost in the middle yep. of writing a campaign. I wanted to bring up something that I tried to do. Remember back in whatever grade we learned it in um, in school when you diagrammed sentences and you had the sentence laid out and then you had the little arrows going up and down and you know making little bridges kind of back and forth. When I'm writing a campaign, a lot of times what I'll do is on a big sheet of easel paper, I'll put on one end where I know I want my PCs to start and on the other, I'll put where I know I want them to finish and then just start kind of brainstorming and actually writing on the paper in little bubbles or squares mm -hmm. scenes I want them to play out. Like, okay, here they're traveling, here they're in a dungeon, and then I start actually connecting the dots, and then from those little connection dots, I start drawing other connections. Like, okay, well, if they have to get here, they probably need a key, so I'll draw an arrow backwards where they find this key, and okay, let's put the mysterious old man here who gives them a clue and how do they meet him. And mm -hmm. You end up kind of visually painting out the, the process in your head. And for me, anyway, I think that is a really, really useful tool. It helps me kind of just straighten out all my ideas and refine everything into one cohesive storyline. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you guys do that kind of thing or um, that'd be useful for anybody, but at least that's... A word of advice of what I do. So I'm actually running almost directly opposite of that right now. So I've got like <laughs> a couple of campaigns going right now. I've got I have three live campaigns I'm doing right now, and I'm honestly not planning any of them beyond one to two kind of next steps that it's going to take beyond what I expect in the next in the next session. But I'm finding it much easier for myself. So I'm basically starting with a premise of what happens when. XYZ is going on and then we just kind of go from there play out the next session and then at the as I plan for the next session I make myself list like what are the issues and what are the questions that are that are going on right now and what are the character complications that will in, that could influence the 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 outcome of that and I start kind of planning where 
where things should kind of what should happen within that next session. But I'm finding if I just kind of focus on that next session and making that next session interesting, that it, it seems to be working pretty well for keeping the game exciting. But I have to be really, really careful. Like at the end of every session, I have to run through my thoughts really fast and write down anything that got revealed or that I had to make up during the session so that I don't like screw up my continuity later because yeah if I try to plan out that kind of like some of those detail continuity things as I go I just screw it up but if I just kind of go with it from session to session and just try to make notes of the things that the lock in during that session it's working so far <laughs> cross my fingers <laughs> nice and I think the value in that is that we have two people that have DM for a while, and you know I've played in Porter's game, and I can attest to his ability to run a good game. I, I imagine Caleb in our communication. I, I have faith that you do a good job as well, but you have vastly different ways that you plan and plot out your games. So there is no one method that's best. It's the method that's best for you and what you like to do. I'm probably closer to Porter just because I've done this long enough. I know that if I spend all that time planning that they're going, players are going to screw it up and not do what I want anyways. And then I'm either <laughs> going to be forced to just scrap all my plans or railroad them into what I want, which isn't satisfying for them. So I'm more like you. Is I, I usually plan a game or two ahead and then just sort of and I, this is one thing I have to do a better job of. I don't take good notes, which is why I screw up NPC names all the time because I make them up and then I forget. And then I will sometimes have continuity errors. I was like, oh, yeah, uh, that did happen. And one of the most recent ones, I, the, the episode, I think it's the episode that I'm about to re release for A New World, is we introduce one of the new char characters because uh, Nico wasn't there that first session, so his character isn't introduced until episode four. And he's being spoken to by someone and then it was like 20 minutes later we realized oh wait in your backstory you guys already knew each other so I was like oh wait yeah that, that whole conversation doesn't make any sense so we just yeah, start over uh, so there's going to be some interesting editing in that uh, episode I'm going to have to cut stuff from the back and delete stuff from the front but, so <laughs> one of the things that we wanted to talk about on this podcast today is so, say, so you've got your inspiration or, or you don't I guess what I should say is for whatever reason, everything fails you. You don't have a book you can go to. You don't have a movie. All your friends read the same books you do, or you've read the same, you know, that kind of thread, read the same books, watch the same movies. So you're kind of forced to go to the well. And the, the method that we suggest that you use is what we're calling synergy. And right now, we're, what this means is we're taking a random pack of magic cards, popping them open, going through them one at a time, and sort of using that as inspiration to create NPCs, create encounters, create antagonists, and just sort of developing an idea for either an encounter, an adventure, or a full-blown campaign. You could use other types of cards. Uh, you know, I think, Caleb, you mentioned before tarot cards would be something you could use as well. As I've I been like listening to the show, I have been, I, every time I listen to you guys do a, a round of synergy, I keep thinking that tarot cards would be an interesting uh, an interesting approach to this, especially if you really know all of your, like, all the different levels of the tarot cards and stuff. See, that's my problem is I don't. I actually have a fantasy-themed version of tarot cards that I bought mm -hmm. for a... Uh, I had played a character once. He was a cleric that was sort of like uh, worship the, the god of fate, and I would like, at, each night at camp, I would play out our fortunes and that kind of thing. It was just a character accoutrement. And, uh, but other than that, I really don't have a lot of knowledge about it, so I, I think that's kind of my hesitation to, to do that. But sure. if you want on a future episode, Caleb, if you want to do one, uh, we absolutely could post it. But for this particular episode, we opened a pack of 
core, core yeah. 2014, if I remember. If not, it might be Dragon Maze or, or Gatecrasher. I'm sure the people who listen to us that know Magic better than we do will probably will recognize the cards. But uh, so bonus what, points. Exactly, bonus points. So when I release this, I will put in the show notes the list of cards, and I'll kind of cover them quickly. And I'll even put sort of what what my initial thought was for each one, because I think it's interesting to see what my first thought was and then how I ended up wrapping them all together. But the cards were Divination, Plummet, Suntail Hawk, Zephyr Charge, Hunt the Weak, Sensory Deprivation, Act of Treason, Aramancer, Cancel, Vampire Warlord, Sarah Angel, Wall of Frost, Bastwood Hydra, and Banisher Priest. So, Caleb, we're going to start with you again. Just kind of run through the idea that you had for an, either an adventure or a campaign based off those cards. And then, Porter, if you want to weigh in, kind of some thoughts as well. And then I'll, I'll do mine after that. Okay. So, what I did when uh, you sent me this list of cards, I looked at them and... I ended up kind of writing a Mad Lib style story. Um, I, I took the, <laughs> <laughs> I took the the names of the cards as the elements I had to use, and just started writing a little bit of fantasy around them. So what I'm going to share here is essentially just a big paragraph of prose. It could be the start of a campaign. It could be the middle of a campaign. But here's what I have: A king falls in battle. His daughter, an Oromancer with divination powers, is too young to rule, so the High Cleric, who is a Banisher Priest, is appointed Regent. The daughter suspects an act of treason, however, so she sends a message via her Suntail Hawk to the Champions of the Kingdom, who are the PCs. They are currently on a mission to slay the Vastwood Hydra. This is an incredibly dangerous beast, and the PCs are close to death. Luckily, the hawk plummets in at the right moment, attacking and turning the tide of battle. The PCs try to contact the daughter, but she has been locked in sensory deprivation by the cleric, who is assumed <laughs> control of the kingdom. The PCs rush back, but are blocked by a wall of frost that the cleric created. They journey to find an item to cancel the frost wall, this item is held by the Sarah Angel. She is currently in charge of the Zephyr Charge, a wild hunt-style group of warriors who hunt the weak on the field of battle. While tracking the Angel, the PCs come across a rumor that the king has been revived as a vampire warlord. <laughs> that sounds awesome! But again, that's coming from, and this is very, very obvious, the fact that when I write ideas, I write it like a story. Mm -hmm. And I'm much more comfortable writing prose than anything else. So my, my default state is to write a paragraph, a, con a condensed beginning, middle, end kind of thing, and I look at it in three acts, so to speak. And then where I put that in the story, how I draw that out and expand it, is my creation process. As I mentioned before, because we've, we've already done this once before, <laughs> um, there's definitely some sort of overlap between your ideas and mine, and I think some of that's, th you know, some cards lend themselves to being used very literally, and others, I think, are more of an inspiration. But I think that would be a fantastic uh, start of a, of a long-going campaign, whether the, the king being revived as a undead, you know, vampire warlord 
is something that is known and that the key PCs have to face, or that could be something that's revealed, you know, months later in game time where, you know, you, you've saved, sort of saved the princess and you brought the kingdom back to sort of control and you've had a little bit of time to be heroes and all the PCs are fat and happy. And then you understand, you know, you, you learn of this dark force that's rising in the east all Sauron-like. And it turns out to be the, the revived king, which puts people's loyalties into in test. I mean, I definitely think there's enough meat there to make a very interesting story that's not just connect the dots, kill the bad guys, but there's some real moralistic choices. And depending on the character classes that were picked, uh, you could really play on those. I, w- I was going to say I would like to see kind of the opposite of that, um, where the king is not rising to power to be the dark warlord, but they actually have to come to terms with their king being a vampire and accepting him back <laughs> into the kingdom. So that, I mean, that would be a, a good option, and um, it would be one of those really kind of complicated moral choices that the the players slash PCs have to make. You, you have sworn you have sworn your loyalty to a to a vampire warlord. Now deal with it. Yeah, like what if what if he was just a kick-ass king, and he was the best guy ever, and he's still that same person. He's like, guys, yes, I'm a vampire, but I'm still going to be fair to you. I'm still going to take care of you all. I I'm just, just want to be king again. Feed on your children. <laughs> yeah, just, just a little taste. But otherwise, he's a great guy. <laughs> yeah. Hey, everybody has a. That's right. Everybody um, has flaws. I love it. Awesome. So uh, actually, with, with that sort of that caveat to your story, mine could actually be like yours is the prequel and mine is the sequel. How they kind of pull in each other. So what I came up with is that there's two different nations and they're in a sort of a Cold War situation. One nation is ruled by an undead vampire lord, and the other is by an, by an avatar of a god. Because of some unknown reason, which basically means that I couldn't think, think of a good one, these two forces are unable to directly oppose each other. So the vampire lord and the avatar can't actually fight one another, but their nations can. So right now there's a, sort of these you know spying and that type of activity going on. There's a, a sort of a, a recluse um, who has been visited by the ghost of an NPC, and... Um, probably a major figure on one side or the other, I'm thinking the angel side, and this ghost imparted information about a traitor on the angel side, and it turns out this is the banisher priest. He's one of the highest ranking members of their society, and a banisher priest in this story is very rare, and they're very powerful, and they have uh, innate abilities to directly oppose vampires and undead, and so this banisher priest feels like it's his God-given right and his birthright to take the war to the undead the vampire lord and fight him directly. So this uh, NPC recluse has uh, dispatched his Suntel Hawk with a message to the PCs and when the when it shows up it's been wounded but it's able to actually make it there. The information on the note was too cryptic to fully understand so the PCs actually have to travel into the deep wood to meet with this recluse and find out exactly what was going on. On their way there, they get ambushed by, by forces that they think are from the Vampire Lord, but they're actually from the Banisher Priest side. And right in the middle of the battle, a large animal, like an animal companion, will kind of come to their rescue and stay with them and protect them until they get all the way to um, the recluse's house. Uh, actually, watching The Hobbit today, I realized this is very similar to, uh, I can't remember his name, it's the, the bear guy from The Hobbit. Bjorn. 
Bjorn, yes, it's very similar to Bjorn, actually. When they get to the recluse's house, they find him in an almost comatose state. He's been infected by a sensory deprivation curse. It makes him unable to communicate with them. So he can't see, he can't touch, can't taste, can't hear. They then would make their way back to the main city and find that this curse has started to spread among the populace of that city, that people are just falling into these coma-like states. The leader of the human forces, this banisher priest bad guy, who has declared that this affliction is caused by the vampire lord and is trying to convince his nation to go to all-out war. Some agents of the angel ask the PCs to go in secret to the vampire nation and try to find out if this is true or not. Before they go, one of the traders gives them a special item. It's sort of like a magical boon but it turns out it's actually cursed so that spellcasters can't cast their spells. I think we talked before, that would you kind of have to play that by ear. It couldn't be too obvious or they would probably find out long before it became a, an effective cursed item. So maybe it only works after the fifth spell or certain levels of spells. They would have to get into the vampire nation. They have to navigate a magical barrier between the two, which is a wall of frost, very similar to the wall from Game of Thrones, except in, my, in this version it's much wider with twisting passages. The only way they're eventually going to be able to get through, they're going to have to keep climbing upward and upward. And once they get to the top, they're going to face sort of the mid-boss, which is an Ice Hydra. And depending on what level the characters are in the battle, the Ice Hydra may be able to regenerate some of its hit points by having contact with the wall. Once they defeat the Hydra, they'll get a, go ahead and get across into the Vampire Lord's territory. Uh, they'll be captured, and there'll be some social skills and maybe social combat that happens. And they will find out that the Vampire Lord is not behind this, but he's okay with going to war, so he actually doesn't want you guys to be able to go back and tell the truth, so he, you know, he welcomes the war. So he'll try to kill the PCs, they'll then have to fight and then run. Once they head back across the wall, they'll be in their final confrontation with the big bad, uh, who does not want them to go back and tell the truth and ruin his plan, so the big fight will be against the Banisher Priest. Assuming that the PCs win, at the very moment where they're about to kill him, the avatar, the actual avatar of the god will show up and kind of deliver the punishment to the Vanisher Priest, but unfortunately its presence that close to the ice wall will destroy it. And that's where the campaign, or I guess sort of would kind of be midpoint, is now this barrier is gone and there's still all these heightened tensions between the two countries. Nice. Now, here's what I'm noticing between the two of us, and I pointed something out similar to this in take one. When you laid that out, we're definitely painting in much broader strokes than what I was painting. If you kind of look at my little paragraph, you can kind of break it down in terms of encounter scenarios. And that's kind of just how I think as a GM. I I go from moment to moment thinking, okay, whether it's a fight or whether it's a role-playing situation, that's kind of the core of that moment, and then I let the players, you know, filter in and filter out of that. So when I'm writing the story, I go... Those are the dots that I connect. When when you were talking about your story there, Michael, you were really painting the long story. Now, it might have only been a couple sessions to play out, or that could have been the entire encounter from level 1 to 20. You know, But you definitely had a lot more open holes in your story for more gaming, more elements more side quests, more input from your players to help develop. One of the phrases we talk about where I work is um, strength out of control. And I think that writing those big picture ideas are sometimes, it's my strength, but I do think sometimes I do too much of it. 
for those people who listen to the podcast can sometimes attest that a good story doesn't always equal a good game. And that's why sometimes we you may that's have true. three hours of role-playing at my table and no combat. And for some groups, that's fantastic. But for, you know, even some of my players, they'll, they'll say, you know, I, I had a fun tonight, but I really wish we would have had at least one combat. And because I do these big pictures, I don't always work in, okay, here's where the fight happens. I kind of wait for them to instigate a fight. Or if I just see everybody's bored to tears, I'll try to throw one in. Where I think yours is more written like an actual module that you pick off the shelf that, you know, here's the scene where you learn X. It will lead you to this place. You know, and it's not like it's, you know, paint by numbers. I'm not saying that. But it is definitely more streamlined where you have an idea of where to go. Mine is like, okay, there's this big thing happening. Where do the PCs fit in? Because I could see a scene where they go to the Banisher Priest and there's like a really cool role-playing scene where he tries to convince them he's right, but he suspects that they're on the other side and you know there's some tension there, but it may not become a fight. Maybe I'm going to slight, slight, slight thought off to the side here, but on the idea of campaigns that um, where, where you'll go for a long session without having any combat, I think people enjoy will enjoy that a lot more if when we when you have ways to sort of um, create interesting tactical risks and challenges within those role-playing adventure, within those role-playing sequences where um, they get the same thrill of, of, uh, of a combat, which some systems do better than others. Yeah, 4th edition actually kind of put that into writing when they came up with the... Yes skill-based encounters. Yeah, I thought skill challenges, even though I know, I think skill challenges got a really bad rap, because I think they got written up in the initial book not super well, but as they started releasing modules for 4th edition, you saw skill challenges start taking on some pretty cool directions, and some, you know, a lot of games kind of started taking that in a, uh, in a like, 13th age, I think, kind of took that ball and took it in another direction, and I, I think there were some neat ideas there about making encounter, you know, non-combat encounters more than a single role resolution, um, which is what I had always been exposed to before that. You know, your role-playing scene would, you'd role-play your scene, and then it would get decided by a single toss of a dice, um, which doesn't have the same kind of built-in tension and build-up and back-and-forth that you get in combat. People like the back-and-forth of combat. So, shameless plug for Fate. I think Fate does this really, <laughs> really well. So does 13th Age. So do a lot of other kind of... Um, Modern in you know modern indies game kind of styles, but uh, it's it's something that I can I think makes those non combat sessions that give them that same sort of tension and engagement. Sorry, back to your main to back to the main topic. <laughs> no, no, I, I think that that's a good uh, that's a good tangent to go on. You know, again, I've, I've said it before, I'm not I, I started really out really liking Fourth Edition. It's kind of what brought me back into the game after a mm -hmm. little bit of a break with a move. And there's things that it does remarkably well, but the more I played it sort of the less enamored I came became with it. But yeah. when I first read about skill challenges, I was like, wow, this is this is like groundbreaking. This is a new way to make role playing quantifiable and you know, it answered a lot of problems that I had had in my games, but I had I never was able to run one that I thought worked. And you know, whether that's my failing as a DM or the the rules, a little bit of both, but I've read on, you know, 
message boards and forums and Twitter, that, that's kind of a common reality is that people like them, but they're just not easy to run. Yeah, no, you're not alone that. I, I don't think I ever ran a 4E skill challenge that was satisfying. The idea was fantastic, and yes. I think it spawned a lot of good movement in the industry, and it brought a lot of good ideas to, to people to kind of take it forward in better directions. But, um, yeah, I don't think I ever ran a good 4E skill challenge either. I uh, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, kind of closing up the synergy thing, that those were the two ideas that Caleb and I had. Unfortunately, Porter wasn't able to get a copy of the cards early enough for, for him to play along this time, maybe next. I do have but an idea really quick to add, though. So sure. take the Dome of Ice and the, 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 the sensory deprivation. We're gonna, uh, I I've had came up with an idea while you guys were talking for a Sleeping Beauty spinoff where Princess is sealed in a... Uh, her, her and her whole kingdom get sealed beneath a Dome of Ice Frozen is a moment in time. She this happens because a dark priest is sending a wild hunt of avenging angels after her in order to take the throne, and she goes to her great 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 grandfather locked in a crypt, who is actually a vampire lord, and he locks the kingdom into an ice stasis, and the the heroes find the frozen kingdom in the middle of a jungle, thousands years old and forgotten. And if they release the princess, the wild the wild hunt of angels swooped continues to swoop down. See what I really like about that um, is that brings out one of my favorite things about role playing games is I like those moral dilemmas, and I like playing on the, the characters' perceptions that they're the heroes and they do something that's actually really bad. So you give them <laughs> this you give them this kingdom that clearly needs in need of rescuing, so they rescue it, and the moment the princess opens her eyes, she's like, "What have you done?" <laughs> and they're you like. Know? Oh, shoot! Oh. Whoops. Yeah, I love doing that. But if there's anybody that would like to take the same cards, because I'm going to post them on the website, and give us your ideas, fantastic. You know, throw them up on the comments or send them to us on, on Facebook. Or if you want to do your own synergy, open your own pack of cards, send us what you come up with, and we'll throw that up on the website as well. And then the last thing I'll throw in about this is not this coming week, because we're going to replay our second sort of uh, one, even though it's, I guess it's a two-shot, of Star Wars Edge of the Empire. We're getting ready to start that fate game that I've talked a little bit on Twitter. It's going to be like a low-power supers game and a sort of a post-apocalyptic future. I've really been struggling with coming up with the story. Like, I just, I don't know, d and is my wheelhouse. Fantasy, I know it front to backwards. I have so many books I've read and movies, and I have so much to draw on, draw on. But I've really been struggling with how to kind of work this into a game. So I actually did a synergy with a pack of magic cards, and I'm just like, okay, I'm going I'm to forget the fantasy element. I'm just going to use the themes. And I actually have now come up with a story, and I'm actually pretty excited about it. And I think it's going to be a, a way for me to jump into this fate game. It, it's not as well-developed as, like, the one I discovered because there is the fantasy element I'm having to deal with. But it at least gave me a starting point now for this fake game. So it, it can work in other genres, not just D&D. I really wish I lived closer to you so I could come play in that game. That sounds like so much fun. Well, you'll get to listen to it, hopefully. Oh. So you can uh, you can live vicariously in it. But uh, it would be awesome if you live closer as well, because I'd love for you to guys <laughs> play my game. Uh, and I know it's going to be it's, it's a long drive for Caleb. It'd be even longer for you, Porter. <laughs> but you are absolutely welcome at my table anytime. <laughs> Um, so now that you've got your campaign idea, whether you stole it from a podcast, a book, a movie, or Synergy, uh, the question comes, you've got to populate it with PCs. And the question we're going to talk about is, what level do you start that game? 
Is there a particular benefit of starting at certain levels? Do you have a particular favorite level that you want to start? So, Porter, since you weren't part of that first conversation, I want to start with you. When you're playing a D&D type game, so D&D, any, yep. any edition, 13th age, that kind of thing, is there a particular level that you like the best or you like starting at? Or or what, what sort of factors play into your mind when you decide that? So all through 2nd edition, 3rd edition, Pathfinder, um, I hate level 1. I hate level 1 with a fiery passion because I hate feeling like I, I have to like treat the PCs like porcelain because they'll get you know one good swing from an orc with a great axe and they're dead. Um, and so I always really liked level 3. Also level 3 lets multi uh, characters who are built with a multi-class concept um, at least have the foundation of that multi-class concept. So like you know, level two wizard, level one rogue, or or something, or fighter major. It you know, it's really hard to start at level one with a multi-class desire and not be able to start with that multi-class in effect. Um, however, I I did find that level one in uh, fourth edition, thirteenth age, um, uh, ev- uh, is is a lot more satisfying. I don't think I will ever use level one in D and D next, from what I've seen of it. Um, well, and, and speaking speaking to that, if you're yeah. if you're not familiar, uh, that's one of the sort of the design conceits that unless they have changed in the new rules, they assume that level one and level two are apprentice levels. Yep. And that's yep. more designed for people who are just learning to play the game and want to figure out their characters. And there's sort of an assumption that if you're an experienced player, experienced experienced DM, that you will start at third level. Yep, and I probably will every time because the character options at level three in D and D next look fun. There's some good, there's some good character options, but um, I, I as I've, uh, but I I feel like characters have a hard time expressing many of their concepts until level three. So, but uh, a lot of other games like uh, Fate or Dark Heresy or uh, uh, Savage Worlds, I feel like at level right at the starting level of the game, I can usually get a fairly exciting character out the door, but. Um, but yeah, for for, uh, for Pathfinder in 3.5 or second edition, I always had a hard time at, at starting right at level one. All right, what about you, Caleb? I think that if I'm starting at a low level, I do like to be in the three to five level range, just because you can do more. So really along the same lines of what Porter just clarified there. I think, and this is something I touched on last time around, maybe I can make it a little bit more clear this time, pretty much all of us have a lot of gaming experience under our belts. So when we are rolling a character, or we are watching our players roll a character, we know that it's more exciting to be able to do more things. Yep. Yep. So if I make them start at first level... I've either got to let them, I've either got to give them levels real fast, or I've got to make those first level encounters really exciting to keep their interest. So a lot of times, in that mindset, the desire to level up is more about making the game interesting instead of really developing the PCs themselves. And on one hand, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But on the other hand, you're kind of sacrificing character growth and development for the excitement of the game. So there's there's a real fine line there between some give and take. 
I think I, I'm on the opposite side of the spectrum. I know we've covered this before in different ways, but my actual favorite level to start a game is zero. I am a huge fan <laughs> of the, the hero's journey. I like taking peasant farmers who... You like the farmer boy with a sword? Oh, absolutely. I, I want you to pick up your, your hoe or your sickle or your, you know, a water walking staff and have to fight off the goblins that have attacked and taken your women and children and go into the mountains after them. Like I, that is one of my favorite things. One of my all time favorite games I've ever ran. I started the PCs off as children. And it's, I mean, I've actually ran that beginning of that game. I think three times it's, it's absolutely <laughs> one of my favorite. I, I started to write it as a module for the website and realized I'm not very good at writing modules. And I, I was writing a story instead of a module. One of these days I'll come back to it, but yeah, that's, it's one of my absolute favorite things. Um, I started, again, three different groups on that. They're all zero level. They're in the small village. There's a there's a tavern in this village that has no business being there. It's like this three-story gigantic inn and tavern that's ran by this former adventurer. And, but it's in this little podunk town that's got like you know six, 16 people in it. And, uh, of course, uh, the history of this uh, famed adventurer comes back to haunt her as she's targeted by some guards. Uh, the PCs get involved in trying to protect their friend, and then the village gets burned to the ground, and they're forced into the woods to flee. And it goes from there. But uh, I absolutely just love starting off at zero level. As a player, you know, it depends on the type of game. Like the the game that we that I kind of came up with, Synergy. I don't think that you could start at zero level. It, you you would just to Porter's point, you just get murdered in the very first scene. You know, and that you're probably going to start about sixth or seventh level, and you're probably going to finish up between twelve and fifteen in a classic D&D game. So I think some of it depends on the type of story that you want to tell. But for me, I want my players to become attached to their character's personality first and their ability second. Uh, I equate it to back, you know, playing poker for no money. If we're just playing for play chips, I want to go all in every time because I don't care. There has to be something on the table. Even if it's a dollar, there has to be something on the table for me to take poker seriously. And I view it the same with my characters. If you start off at sixth level... You don't have a character. You have a six-level character. And I think you're more likely to do something stupid and get yourself killed because you don't care about that character outside of what it can do in this cool combo or this cool ability or power. And it's not to say that that's bad. It's just the type of game that you're in. If you're in a very combat-focused game, then probably it's a little bit different because you just want to see how quickly can I kill this goblin or how powerful can I make this combo. Uh, the type of games that I particularly like to run are more story-based, as you know, if you're listening to the podcast. Um, so I really want you to develop a personality first, and then when I put you in danger, there's tension there. I, I, I don't know. If, I, I feel like you're creating a false dichotomy there between starting power level and, and, uh, and um, uh, de- uh, you know, it, de- investment in the character's concept, um, because... Uh, taking, um, I think I feel like the big difference is how, is what your character starts out capable of, um, and I feel like in in a lot of systems, starting level is not terribly competent, and so you character is in a lot of cases you can't start with a character that has accomplished anything, and uh, I don't know that that necessarily equates to. Not want to, you know to to wanting my higher level character to simply just being a bag of stats. I want a higher level character who can, you know, actually have a story of having been a have have already been an accomplished, competent hero, uh, because that's the story I want to tell. So I I feel I don't quite agree with that dichotomy there. 
Well, I think it's interesting that one of the things that we brought up about fate that, that is vastly different than like D&D is in D&D, in &D, very often to get to the character that you want to play, you do have to get to third level or higher. Mm -hmm. In some cases, you have to get even higher than that, and you have to have a particular magic item or a particular feat tree or multi-class or prestige class. And I think the benefit of Fate is that the, the moment you sit down, you're playing the character you want to play. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and in D&D, I think that's the, the benefit of, of kind of fifth level where Caleb was talking is that almost all character concepts in D&D hit their stride at about fifth level. You know, that not not all, but but vast majority will feel fairly well expressed by that point either but you know because by that point usually you'd have a, a couple of feet or you know your your character can it feels like a seasoned professional by that time and so that there is a there is an allure to starting at fifth level simply because you can start feeling kind of iconic that's when you start getting fireballs and flight and a magic sword that's worth a darn you know so I mean some of those things start coming into their own in like second edition I that's you know kind of where I started. I played basic yeah, for a too. while in second edition. Uh, sixth level to eighth level is kind of the sweet spot. I think that mm -hmm. was the the most fun for the players, where you can do cool stuff, but you're not so powerful that it's almost impossible to make an encounter without just cheating and having you know magic zones that magic doesn't work for whatever <laughs> reason. Uh, right. anything, once you get however like eighth or ninth level, it's almost impossible. It was for me to to create an interesting challenge without just cheating. So I don't know, and I think. I, I guess I don't disagree with your disagreeing. I just, uh, <laughs> for me, I like to start characters as nobody. So it would be different if you write this backstory mm -hmm. about how, you know, you are a third-generation military brat. You've been in the Guard since you were five. You're the greatest swordsman in your kingdom. And I say, okay, you're starting at level zero. That doesn't make sense. And, that you know, I've, I've invalidated your backstory. So I think it comes down, to, as always, to the player and the mm -hmm. GM having a conversation and you playing the game that everyone can be happy with. If, if the players want to come to the table already being heroes, but you want to play a D&D style game, then yeah, first level probably doesn't make sense. If they're interested in that story that starts off as they're nobodies or they're the, the street rat that becomes the prince of thieves or they're the farmer whose family was killed by orcs when they were out, you know, swimming in the pond with a girlfriend, and they become the greatest hero, then it's, it makes sense to start at level zero. It just depends yeah. on the story you're trying to tell and the game you're going to play. And I will say that using a system like 13th Age or 4th or, or, uh, Edition, it's pretty impossible to tell that that farmer, the farmer boy with a sword story. But just because even your lowest level, first level characters were are pretty darn pretty darn powerful they 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 have they seem like they have they're already pretty heroic at level one in those, oh, absolutely. In those systems i played especially in 13th age edition. i'm sorry especially fourth edition yeah well fourth edition and 13th age are very similar in that you you're mm -hmm. assumed much like fate that your characters are heroes the moment yeah. you start yeah. they are competent powerful dramatic people yep and that's not the case in other games. Like I played in 13th Age in, in, at Gen Con, and I ran one 13th Age game. It's, it's on a podcast. And you start off at like three times the normal hit points you would in a regular D&D game. And yeah, yeah absolutely. It, you're you're much more powerful. We, we call it a D&D kick-ass. It really is. And and <laughs> I, I've always been a big fan of that high heroic game, and I think that's why, my, why I kind of enjoy that. But you're absolutely right. Not with that being the starting level, like, the game's not built for you to go below that, like, and so it does create a little bit of an odd 
situation in the world where you know if anyone's a level one fighter, they're 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 pretty wild good. So who? What about all the people who aren't level one fighters? So it, you have to just kind of throw simulation out the window and just accept that these are these are the rules for heroes, and everyone else follows other rules. Right, and and that goes back to the conversation Kayla and I had on our previous podcast about NPCs in a D and D setting. I create NPCs the same way I would create a PC because I want to have that fair balance. But in like 13th Age, for example, and again, I've only played once and ran once. I'm by no means an expert. If it's you know just the town guard, nobody, no, I'm not going to make them equivalent to a level one PC because to your point, Porter, that's too powerful. Yep, they're they're overpowered for what an NPC would be. Which, of course, has great implications for the amount of preparation DMs have to put into their, into their games. Yes. Uh, it, it, again, the more system mastery you have with, with whatever system it is, it's easier to make stuff up on the fly. Or you have, like, you know, okay, a third-level rogue's going to have about 12 to 18 hit points. Their armor class is going to be around here. Yep. Their backstab's going to be about here. So you can kind of fake it till you make it in a lot of those cases. <laughs> if a fight pops up that you didn't expect or you just want to add some tension, uh, you know. But again, if you're if you're a brand new DM, then you're going to have to do a little bit more prep work. So I would again, my advice for someone who's just starting, I would say first to third level in a D and D type game. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe if you're playing fourth edition, you could more to one because you're all more powerful. Because I just think it's going to be more difficult for you to create an exciting adventure that the play- PCs can't just destroy because of these powers and abilities that you don't know that they have. If yeah. you've never played D&D before and you let somebody play a 15th level wizard, you're, <laughs> you're going to lose. Because no. <laughs> there's nothing, unless you, just, unless you go straight to the T's and pull out that one that no one can pronounce, uh, they're going to kill anything in there, in your monster manual. That's just the way it's going to work. Or Codzilla. <laughs> yeah. So I still actually um, another divergent. I've I've been wanting to create this game for forever, and it's still sort of like my life mission. And the the game I talked about before that I started three times. This was actually the long game to that. I wanted to create a game where the Tarask. That's how I've always been taught to to pronounce it. I, I know there's other pronunciation, but oh, you I think mean you guys, the Tarasque? Yes, the Tarasque. <laughs> I've always called it the Tarask. I know. I think I'm wrong, but. Again, I've heard it exactly that way, though, so I don't know. I'm, I'm a hick from Kentucky, so I'm going to assume that I'm wrong, but that's what I've always called it was the Tarrasque. I wanted to create a game where the Tarrasque was just like Godzilla in the old movies, not the very first Godzillas, but the stupid ones in like the 60s and 70s, where the PCs learned where the Tarrasque was sleeping, and they had this knowledge, and then something else happened that was so bad that their only option was to wake the Tarrasque up. And in that, in my version, it would be the Orcus, the, the, the demon prince, was actually going to come through into the world and was so powerful, the only thing they could do was to wake the Tarrasque up on purpose because they knew that those two things would fight. And then the, the game would be trying to keep everyone else safe. So that was like the end point would be, do we wake up the Tarrasque? to fight Orcus, or do we just live subjugated by the Demon Lord? Oh, dude, that's not the end point. Make that the very first thing in your game is the Tarrasque wakes up. Run Ah. for your life. The kicker is you're at zero level. Yes, exactly! (laughs) Well, and then that's actually... done? That that was the zero level of the... um, The reason they were after that, the former adventurer, is that she knew where the Tarrasque was buried, 
and there were some evil people that were obviously wanting to use it, almost like like the A bomb in like a bad movie. They were going to you know give us a million dollars or wake up the draft type thing. Uh, so the That's PCs were going to fi- find out where it was. And and then I was just going to kind of ignore that for many many levels. Like you know this the secret many many levels. Then all of a sudden Orcus is about to be released, and it's like all right, you're going to fight fire with fire by God, and, and you go wake up because I just think it would be awesome to to probably have to play that out beforehand, roll all the rolls, and then just describe how that battle goes because I really don't know who would win between Orcus and uh, Tarasque, but it would be a hell of a fight. That actually reminds me, have you guys heard about this? There's a new setting out that came out this last year, I think, called Day, The Day After Ragnarok. No, I've not heard of that. I can't remember what system it's for, but it sounds freaking awesome. It's basically a modern modern fantasy kind of thing, but they take... Um, the premise is that uh, something, something, something... Someone com- completes a ritual that brings the world serpent into our modern world, and... The world serpent does something wild and crazy and then dies and lands crushing the whole of continental Europe and sets off, like, radioactive tidal waves across the whole world and, like, basically just screws up the world. But the whole premise is what happens if the world serpent got released and then died and crashes onto onto Europe and what happens to the world after Ragnarok has occurred. And I, I haven't. I need to buy it, but it lo- it just sounds freaking awesome. Your 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 idea reminded me of that. Nice. I'm um, quick Google search. It looks like it's out for Savage Worlds, and I'm seeing a Fate version of it as well. Who are the publishers there? We should give them a pimp because it sounds awesome. <laughs> um, that's a really good question. I don't know. Whoever they are. Atomic Overmind Press. Atomic Overmind Press. You guys have a great idea. I'm going to go buy that. If you could, uh, Porter, send me a quick email with that, and I'll put it in the show notes, and I'll link to it. Got it. Um, And then the last thing I wanted to cover tonight, just really quickly, we're not actually going to cover it. I'm just going to say that we're going to cover it in a future podcast is a... um, I got an email. This has actually been a while back, and I feel really bad about this. I apologize, but I got an email from Olaf. His name was Olaf Olafsson. So to begin with, I thought it was some sort of scam until I Googled the name, and that's actually a very common Swedish name. And uh, Mr. Olaf sent me an email asking me to review a um, an RPG, sort of a, um, it's an old-school Renaissance indie hybrid-type thing called White Hack. And it's a pretty small uh, RPG, D&D-type clone. I don't have a lot of the details. I think, Porter, you actually did more research than I have on this already. Uh, but I am going to get to it. I, I promise I will. I apologize it has taken so long. Uh, but as soon as I get a chance, I will do a little bit more research and we'll talk about it on a future episode. Uh, so anyone out there who's familiar with White Hack that would like to send me some notes either on Facebook, Twitter, or email, please do. And then I'll try to use your thoughts when we do get around to talking about it. You can give us feedback and comments at our website, dndacademy.com. You can check out previous podcasts at our website and subscribe to future ones on iTunes. If you have a suggestion for a topic, we'd love to hear it. Email your ideas to podcast at dndacademy.com, and you can connect with us on Twitter at dnd underscore academy. As always, thanks for listening, and remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.